Shalom from Rabbi John Spira Savet at Temple Beth Abraham in Nashua, New Hampshire. This Purim podcast is based on a sermon I gave in the synagogue this past Shabbat, and it compared the Torah reading, which deals with the construction of a tabernacle, a sanctuary in the desert, with Megillat Esther. If you're interested in celebrating Purim with us, you can find all the information at tbanashua.org. Hangings of white, fine cotton and blue, bordered with cords of fine linen and purple, upon silver rods and pillars of marble. The couches were of gold and silver, upon a floor of green and white and shell and onyx marble, and they gave them drink in vessels of gold, vessels of all different types. This kind of description occurs in only two kinds of contexts in the Tanakh. The Torah is not given to elaborate physical descriptions, even not very elaborate ones, What do you know from the Bible about how Rachel or Avraham or King David look? One context for such flowery description is the temple in Jerusalem, or its model, the Mishkan, the sacred space the Israelites were building in the desert. Since that's what we read about in Shul this morning, this last Shabbat, you might think that's where I'm quoting from. But I'm actually reading from the other place, the Megillah, We don't usually pay much attention to the opening words of the Megillah. We usually glide over them and get right to the story. But the rabbis of the Talmud noticed the unusual language at the beginning there and made a connection. They thought about the fact that the story of Esther is set roughly a century after the destruction of Solomon's temple and the exile of the Jews to Babylonia, which was then conquered by Persia, ruled by King Ahasuerus. They read the verses about linen and purple, silver and marble, vessels of gold, and they said Ahasuerus's banquet hall was made out of the ruins carted off from the temple in Jerusalem. It's not the only connection we could make between the story of Purim and the biblical sanctuary. Both have an inner sanctum where no one is allowed without special permission, the Holy of Holies and the throne room of Ahasuerus. Both stories are anchored by a framework of laws punishable by death, The connections point to something deeper than a literary game. My colleague, Rabbi Jan Urbach, suggests that, among other things, the story of Purim is a kind of satire. What if the Megillah is consciously mocking the Torah, and the part of the Torah particularly, about the creation of a sacred place? Because what the parallels call attention to, really, are the contrasts between the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and the Megillah we read on Purim evening and day. The design of the Mishkan is all about order, orderly design connected to a moral order, all of which brings God's presence into the world in a sacred space. The story of Purim, by contrast, is all about accident and the quick turns between good fortune and bad, then back again for no good reason at all. Each item for the sanctuary and the priests who serve there is described precisely in the Torah and set in its place. The language and the style of the whole section of the Torah there track the opening chapter of Genesis. There, too, each day is an orderly unit in an orderly sequence. Everything is where it belongs. All things respond faithfully to God's command. You could hardly call these chapters stories at all. They are architectural plans for the world. In this framework of order, God's presence is felt, comes to rest someplace in our world. These chapters from Genesis and Exodus, about the creation of the world and the building of a tabernacle, are a religious worldview. They see the world as a place that is fundamentally orderly, 
just as the moral codes we live by could be specified and make us feel secure. We can stand firm, just like the standing acacia boards that hold up the Mishkan, like trees rooted in the earth. There's no disturbing element here, and nothing that would set in motion a story. The Megillah is the absolute opposite. Put aside for now the costumes and everything else we do around the Megillah reading. Esther is a story where the fate of the Jews turns entirely on accidents. The girl Achashverosh happens to choose as queen. The plot Mordechai happens to overhear against the king's life. The night the king happens to wake from his sleep. The times the king does or doesn't happen to put two and two together about things happening before his eyes. And of course there's the word that gives the holiday its name. Purim. Pur means a lot. Everything turns on the throw of the dice. Everything, as in life and death. We experience Purim as a light holiday, which it surely is. But the story is on one level a dark one. Megillat Esther interrogates the worldview of the Torah, of the building of the Mishkan. It turns the tropes and language of the Torah back on the Torah itself. The Megillah takes us far from the Torah's world, literally. Of all the books in the Bible, it has the least connection with Eretz Yisrael, one single mention. There's no explicit mention of God at all. The laws of Shushan, the capital, permeate the book. There is a law about drinking at the king's feast. The law is that no one can force you to drink any particular wine. There is a law about wives honoring their husbands by being at their beck and call. There is a law about coming into the king's presence. If you come unbidden, you are executed. There's apparently a law that the king can't rescind his own laws, and for the Jews to defend themselves at the end requires its own law. And there's a command, a mitzvah, that everyone bows down to Haman. These are laws, but strange and troubling ones, far from the commandments we are familiar with. And if the Megillah is a kind of satire or parable, we ought to pay attention to the figure of the king. We don't think of Achashverosh as anything other than a dupe and a fool. At the center of the book, one night the king's sleep is disturbed by tossing and turning. Instead of counting sheep, he asks that his royal journal be read to him, and he comes across the report of how Mordechai saved his life by overhearing the plot against him. Then follows the wonderful story of Haman coming in. What was he doing there next to the king's bedroom in the middle of the night? Anyway, he's thinking he must be the one who the king wants to honor, and Haman ends up being the one to lead Mordechai through the streets of Shushan as the king's hero. And we know we've reached a turning point in the story, and things will turn out all right. On this episode, we find an astounding comment in the Talmud. Rabbi Tanchum quotes the verse, The king's sleep was disturbed, and he says it means the king of the universe was disturbed from his sleep. It's the kind of comment that would get you kicked out of most yeshivas. Rabbi Tanchum says Achashverosh is a metaphor for God. Through this whole story, God was asleep, worse yet, drunk, asleep at the wheel. There's this long, dangerous time when things are going out of control and God was not supervising events in this world. Until that moment when he woke up, there the king sat in his inner sanctum, his holy of holies, and Esther worried that she couldn't go in there, couldn't voice her prayer, couldn't take the action she needed to take to save her own life and the life of her people, to rescue Persia and Medea from Haman. What if we open the ark and there's nothing there? The world of Shushan and the Megillah is topsy-turvy from the start. 
It's law without moral order. It's a place entirely without a spiritual order, and where life is literally a lottery. That's why the rabbis of the Talmud looked at it and saw all the beautiful materials from the temple in Jerusalem mashed together and strewn about to make Achashverosh's palace. That's why one tradition of Purim was to induce in ourselves a drunken stupor in which you didn't believe there was any difference between Arur Haman and Baruch Mordechai, between cursed as Haman and blessed as Mordechai. As my colleague Noreen reminded me the other day, in Gematria, in Jewish numerology, the two statements have the exact same value. A lot of the time, our world looks a lot more like Shushan than the Mishkan, the tabernacle. Would you say most of the time? Do you believe in God's providence, or is life a throw of the dice? Do you believe we live in a society where the rules point to a guiding hand, or are the laws all about human power? What if the only path to security is a gesher tsar me'od, a narrow escape? These are the questions raised by the Megillah as a book in its own right. I thought about this in connection with a comment one of my colleagues made at a conference where I was last week. I have a co-worker. He's a great guy. He hates me. I thought about it last week in our own community, where we marked both a shiva and a simcha. Fill in your own jumble. Well, there's the Megillah, and then there's Purim. Purim gives us a safety valve to ask these hard questions and blow off steam in the process. We have permission to enter the imagination that says Shushan is reality. We take the book seriously. We read this story of Esther from a scroll, just like the Torah. But we dress ourselves up and read this story, and we boo the bad guy and make sure that everything turns out fine in the end. We acknowledge that the world is complicated, but we make fun of that, and the Megillah is a very funny story. We don't exclude questions and even doubt from our religious life as Jews. We do it in a Jewish container. We mask our faces to make it safer to say daring and even blasphemous things. We do it with humor. We do it in community. Some say that Purim is the prelude to Pesach. We get these questions out of our system, then move on to the serious things and what we really believe. My colleague, Rabbi Urbach, who I mentioned before, argues that Purim is actually the last holiday of the year. We ask our tough questions at the height of our spiritual growth. Off the firm foundation of everything Jews rely on, from Pesach to Rosh Hashanah and beyond, it's safe and even wise to do so. I would like to think that Megillat Esther helps us understand the Mishkan, the tabernacle, that symbol of order in our lives, rather than to reject it. With the Megillah in mind, we can pay attention to the precious materials in our hands. We have gold and silver, marble and silk, cotton and linen, and all kinds of colors. We decide what to build with it in our lives and our world. A temple or its ruins. Places and moments of sanctity or the vapid palaces and drinking parties of Achashverosh. And the Megillah allows us to zoom out a bit, gain some perspective. While the parasha takes us only into the careful craftsmanship of the tabernacle, we can see that the structure stands at the center of a camp, a small place of order surrounded by the real world. Sometimes life feels like the mishkan, and other times like the open or busy places around it. It's both. While there may be more empty space in real life, the sanctuary is still there at the center if we can find it. So think about the Megillah and the sometimes chaotic world it represents. And know, too, there is a sanctuary to come to 
in safety, as a haven, but also in questions and even in doubt. Shabbat Shalom and Simchat Purim.